Hi, this is Samantha. And this is Anuel. And this is Murderous Intentions. Hey guys, so this is going to be a two-parter today. Um, it's actually a very interesting um, case that for a while was unsolved, but let me know hold up the time. Like I said, it's a two-parter, so, and you'll take it away. Okay, so um, today's podcast is about Joseph James D'Angelo, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer, um, and we're going to start with his early life. So, um, Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born on November 8, 1945 in Bath, New York, to Kathleen Louise de Groot and Joseph James D'Angelo, a sergeant in the United States Army. Um, he was, he has two younger sisters and a younger brother. A relative reported that when D'Angelo was a young child, he witnessed his seven-year-old sister's rape by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany, where the family was stationed. Following D'Angelo's conviction, one of the sisters claims he was abused by their father, and I just lost it, sorry. You have a lot of notes. Too many notes, actually. Okay. Um, abused by the father while he was growing up between 1959 and 1960, D'Angelo attended Mills Junior High School in Rancho Cordova, California, beginning in 1961. He, he attended Folsom High School, from which he received a GED certificate in 1964. He played on the school's junior varsity baseball team, Prosecutors reported D'Angelo committed burglaries and tortured and killed animals during his teenage years. D'Angelo joined the United States Army, excuse me, the United States Navy in September 1964 and served for 22 months during the Vietnam War as a damage control man on the cruiser USS Cambrera. C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A, just in case I misspelled it. And the destroyer tender USS Piedmont. Um, beginning in August 1968, D'Angelo attended Sierra College in Rockland, California. He graduated with an associate degree in police science with honors. Uh, he attended Sacramento State University in 1971, where he earned a bachelor's, um, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. D'Angelo later took postgraduate courses and further police training at the College of Sequoias in Basilea. Then completed a 32-week police internship at the police department in Roseville. Um, from May 1973 to August 1976, D'Angelo was, was, was a burglary unit police officer in Exeter a town of about 5,000 people near Valencia. Having relocated from Citrus Heights, he then served in Auburn from August 1976 to July 1979, when he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. He, uh, he was sentenced to six months of probation and fired that October. During the process of being fired, D'Angelo threatened to kill the chief of police and allegedly, that was a big word, 
and stacked the chief's house. In May 1970, D'Angelo became engaged to Bonnie Jean Culver, a classmate at Sierra College, but she broke off the relationship after D'Angelo threatened her with a gun in order to force her to marry him. In November 1973, he married Sharon Marie Hurdle in Placer. Um, 1990, they purchased a house in Citrus Heights, where he was eventually arrested decades later. Uh, Hurdle became an attorney in 1982, and they had three daughters. Two were born in Sacramento, and one was born in Los Angeles before the couple separated in 1991. In July 2008, several months after D'Angelo's arrest, Hurdle filed for a divorce, which was finalized the following year. Um, D'Angelo's employment history during the 1980s is known from, is un, excuse me, the history of, the history during the 1880s is unknown. From 1990 until retirement in 2017, he worked as a truck mechanic at a Save Mart Supermarkets distribution center in Roseboro. He was arrested in 1996 over failing to pay for gas, but the charges was dismissed. Um, D'Angelo's brother-in-law claimed that he casually brought up the East Area rapists in conversation about the time the original, of the original crimes. Um, neighbors reported that he frequently engaged in loud, profane outbursts. One neighbor reported that his family received a phone message from D'Angelo trying to deliver a load of deaths because of the barking dog. He was living with a daughter and a granddaughter at the time of his arrest. Okay. Okay, so we're going into crimes. <laughs> uh, was that not part of the crimes? <laughs> well, that, that was just his early history up to, up to now. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm like, there's some stuff in there that is like, what the French? Yeah, that was just, you know, what happened to him throughout his life. Um, starting from when he was born, but yeah. And it's kind of funny how he witnessed the rape of his sister when he was younger, yeah. and then he was also, we can't prove it, but allegedly was molested by his own dad, yeah. which not giving him like an excuse for what he's done, but yeah. if you look at the 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 factors of what creates serial kills, that is actually one of the, the process. Yeah, one of the biggest things. Absolutely. And then the scary part is what, he was a police officer for like some time. Quite a bit, actually. Damn. Sorry, I'm taking a drink because, you know, I've been talking You're going to go into depth now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. So, starting with all the crimes that he did, mm -hmm. this is a big section of just crimes. Um, DNA evidence linked D'Angelo to eight murders in Goleta, Ventura, Dana Point, and Irving. Two other murders in Goleta lacking DNA evidence were linked by uh, Modus Operandi. I'm guessing. <laughs> D'Angelo pled guilty to three other murders. Two in Rancho Cordoba and one in Valencia. He also committed more than 50 known rapes in the California counties of Sacramento, Contra Costa, 
um, Stan, Stanislas, I don't can't say that word, so I'm just skipping it. Um, San Jaquin, Alamada, Santa Clara, and Yolo. And he was linked to hundreds of incidents of death, burglaries, vandalism, peeping, stalking, and prowling. Okay, so it all began with the Valencia Ransacker. This was from 1973 to 1976. Uh, it was long suspected that the training ground of the criminal who became the East Area Rapist was, Valen was Valencia, although early Valencia crimes dated back as early as May 1973 and other sweets like, like, the, like that of the Cordoba Cat Burglar as well as burglaries that took place after the McGowan shooting, are now suspected to be linked as well. Over a period of 20 months, D'Angelo is believed to have been responsible for one murder and around 120 burglaries. That's not a lot, is it? 120 burglaries. Uh, I, I think that's pretty much a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> okay. In late April 2018, the Valencia Chief of Police stated that while there was a no DNA linking D'Angelo to the Central Valley cases, his department had other evidence that played a role in the investigation. And he was confident that the Valencia ransacker had been captured. Through the status of limitations for the burglaries had have each expired. So there's no burglary charges that, could, that he could, you know, be convicted of because uh, statute of limitations is, yeah. you know. So, um, D'Angelo was um, formally charged on August 13, 2018, when the first-degree murder of Claude Snelly in 1975. In 2020, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to Snelly's murder. Um, burglaries. A composite sketch of the Valencia ransacker. Um, the first recorded ransacking occurred on Meech. Oh, Meech. March 19, 1974, when a sum of $50 in coins was stolen from a piggy bank. Most of wait, the wait, what? Yeah, when a sum of $50 in coins was stolen from a piggy bank. Yes. Okay. Most of the ransackers' activities involved breaking into houses, rifling through or vandalizing the owner's possessions, scaring women's underclothes, and stealing a range of low-value items while often ignoring banknotes and higher value items in plain sight. I got to ask a question. Sure. Um, like nowadays, I understand where if a guy steals female's clothes, you know, there could be a case of being a drag queen or, you know, you want to become transgender, but you don't want to kind of like let people know that you're wanting to. I understand that. But back in 1973... Why in f Sam Heavens was he taking FEMA's clothes? Uh, all I can tell you is that you'll hear later on that he's also a rapist. <laughs> so I think that has something to do with it. Okay, so he starts small and then he right. gets bigger. Okay. He progresses. Yeah. Okay, the ransacker would also often arrange or display items in the house. Items emptied including piggy banks and coin jars um, and stolen items often included blue chip stamps 
foreign or historic coins and personal items such as a single earring, cufflinks, rings, or medallions. But also included six weapons and various types of ammunition. Multiple same-day ransackings were common as well, inclu including 12 separate incidents on November 30, 1974. Um, common MOs of the burglar included scaling fences and moving through established routes such as parks, walkways, ditches, and trails, attempting to pry open multiple points of entry, particularly windows, leaving multiple points of escape open, especially windows, as well as the house, garage, and, go and garden doors. Uh, moving, removed window moving removed window screens onto beds or into bedrooms. Um, placing warning signs such as dishes or bottles against doors and on door handles. Wearing gloves, given the absence of fingerprint evidence. Hmm. On September 11, 1975, D'Angelo broke into the home of, Cla of Claude Snelling, 45, at 530, uh, 532 Wendy Lane, now South Whitney Street. Um, Snelling, a journal journalism professor at the College of Sequoias, had previously chased a parlor dis discovered under his daughter's windows around 10.30 p.m. on February 5, 1975. On September 11th, he was also awakened around 2 a.m. by strange noises. Upon leaving his bedroom, Snelling ran through the open back door and confronted a sick mass intruder in his carp a ski mask, excuse me, confronted a ski mask intruder in his carport attempting to kidnap his daughter, who had been subdued with threats of being stabbed or shot. Snelling was then shot twice, staggered back into the house to his wife, and later died. After the shooting, the assailant fled the scene, leaving behind a stolen bicycle at 615 Redwood Street after the murder. Beth Snelling, 16, a cheerleader at Mount Whitney High School, underwent hypnosis in order to gather further details. The Valencia police also committed more resources to apprehending the ransacker, and a $4,000 reward equivalent to $19,366 in 2021 was posted. Um, nighttime stakeouts were set up by set up near houses that he had previously crawled by the ransackings continued. But the ransackings continued. Yeah. Uh, around 8.30 p.m. on December 12, 1975, a masked man entered the backyard of a house at 1505 West Hawaii Avenue, near where the ransacker had been reported to frequent. Um, when Detective William McGowan, on a stakeout inside the garage, attempted to detain the man, the suspect shrieked, removed his mask, and faced and Fane surrendered after McGowan fired a warning shot. However, after jumping the fences to the house at 15.01, he also pulled out a revolver with his left hand and fired once near McGowan's face, shattering his flashlight. Um, nearby officers rushed to aid McGowan and the shooter was able to escape. Items collected as, a, as evidence included the flashlight, Tennis shoes tracks, 
a dropped loot, namely blue chip cents and a blue sock full of coins. Um, here we go into the East Area Rapist. This is 1976 to 1979. Um, three sketches on which the FBI on which the FBI focused. When it reopened the cases in June 2016, D'Angelo moved to San Clemente area in 1976, where the crimes escalated from burglary to rape. The crimes initially centered on then unincorporated areas of Carmichael, Citrus Heights, and Rancho Cordova, east of Sacramento. His initial modus operandi was a stock middle-class neighborhood at night in search of women who were alone in one-story homes, usually near school, creek, trail, or other open spaces that would prove, provide a quick escape. He was seen a number of times, but always successfully fled. On one occasion, he shot and seriously wounded a younger pursuer. Most victims had seen or heard a prowler on their property before the attacks, and many had experienced break-ins. Police believe that the offender would conduct extensive reconnaissances in a targeted neighborhood, looking into windows and prowling in yards before selecting a home to attack. It was believed that he sometimes entered the homes of future victims to unlock windows, unload guns, and plant ligatures for later uses. He frequently telephoned future victims, sometimes for months in advance, to learn their daily routine. Although D'Angelo really originally targeted women alone in their homes or with children, he eventually preferred attacking couples. His usual method was to break in through a window or sliding glass door and awaken the, the sleeping occupants with a flashlight, threatening them with a handgun. Victims were subsequently bound with ligatures, often shoelaces, that he found or brought with him, then blindfolded and gagged with towels that he had ripped into strips. The female victim was usually forced to tie up her male companion um, before he was bound. Before she was bound, excuse me. The, the bindings were often so tight that the victim's hands were numb for hours after being untied. He then separated the couple after staking dishes on the male's back and threatening to kill everyone in the house if he heard them rattle. He would move the women to, to the living room and rape her, often repeatedly. A victim described the East Area Rapist's face as young and round, with wide eyes and a broad mouth. D'Angelo sometimes spent hours in, in home ransacking closets and drawers, eating food in the kitchen, drinking beer, raping the woman again, or making additional threats. Victims sometimes thought he had left the house before he jumped from the darkness. He typically stole items, often personal objects, and items of little value, but occasionally cash and firearms. He then crept away leaving victims uncertain if he had left. He was believed to escape on one foot, on foot, excuse me, escaped on foot 
through a series of yards and then use a bicycle to go home or to a car, making extensive use of parks, schoolyards, creek beds, and other open spaces that kept him from the street. The East Area Rapists operated in Sacramento County from the, for the, from the first attacks in June 1976 until May 1977. After a three-month gap, he struck in nearby San Joaquin County and in September before returning to Sacramento for all about one of the next ten attacks. The Rapists attacked five times during the summer of 1978 in San Salos and Yolo counties before disappearing again for three months. Attacks then moved primarily to Contra Costa County in October and lasted until July 1979. Busy man. Yeah, too busy actually. So, I, sorry. I'm sorry. How do you keep, like my thing is with this dude, it's like how do you keep, you know, your your daily life away from this life without any time like it intermerging? I, I really don't know. It's kinda it's kind of it's weird that he I'm 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 really not sure he had a life besides this. Cause he he's done he's done stuff not once but sometimes two to three times a day. So, well, he was also married, wasn't he, at this point, or no? Oh, yeah, he was, supposedly he was married to, um, I forgot her name. I think it was, ba no, Bonnie? Probably, Bonnie, um, okay, Hurdle? Oh, okay. Hurdle, yes. That's just crazy, I'm, I'm, huh. Okay. Like, Glad it's you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, a young Sacramento couple, Brian McGorry, and military police at Mater Air Force Base and his wife, Kathy McGregor, were walking their dog in the Rancho Cordova area on the night of February 2nd, 1978, near where the five East Area Rapist attacks had occurred. The Marjories fled after a, a confrontation in the street, but were chased down and shot to death. Some investigators suspected that they had been murdered by the East Area Rapists because of their proximity to the other attacks' locations, and a shoelace was found nearby. The FBI, the FBI announced on June 15, 2016, that it was confident that the East Area Rapists had murdered the McGorries on June 29, 2020, D'Angelo entered a plea of guilty to these murders. Wow. Okay. So, original Night Stalker from 1979 to 1986. Yeah. Um, shortly after the rape July 5th, 1979, D'Angelo moved to Southern California and began killing his victims. First striking in Santa Barbara County in October, the attacks lasted until 1981 with a lone 1986 attack. 
Only the couples in the first attack survived, alerting neighbors and forcing the intruder to flee. The other victims were murdered by gunshot or bludgeoning. Since D'Angelo was not linked to these crimes for decades, he was known as the Night Stalker in the area, but being renamed the original Night Stalker after serial killer Richard Ramirez received the former nickname. Okay. So, um, 1979, on October 1st, an intruder broke in and tied up a Galetta couple, alarmed by hearing him say, I'll kill him to himself. The man and woman tried to escape when he left the room, and the woman screamed, realizing that the alarm had been raised. The intruder fled on a bicycle. A neighbor responded to the noise and pursued the perpetrator who abandoned the bicycle and a knife and fled on foot through local backyards. The attack was later linked to the Offerman Manning murders by shoe prints and swine used to bind the victims. On December 30th, 44-year-old Robert Offerman and 35-year-old Deborah Alexandra Manning were found shot to death at Offerman's condominium on Avendia, Paquina, and Galetta. Offerman's bindings were untied, <coughs> excuse me, indicating that he had lunged at the attacker. The neighbors had heard gunshots. Paw prints of a large dog were found at the scene, leading to speculation that the killer may have brought one with him. The killer also broke into a vacant and a vacant adjoining residence and stole a bicycle. Later found abandoned on the street north of the scene from a third residence in the complex. 1980. <clears throat> <clears throat> on March 13, 33-year-old Charlene Smith and 43-year-old Lyman Smith were found murdered in the Ventura home. Charlene Smith had been raped. A log from a wood pile on the side of the house was used to bludgeon the victim to death. Their wrists and ankles had been bound with a drapery cord. An unusual Chinese knot, a diamond knot, were used on Charlene's wrist. The same knot was noted in the East Area Rapist attacks, at least one confirmed case of which was publicly known. <clears throat> the murder, therefore, briefly given the name Diamond Knot Killer. On August 19, 24-year-old Keith Eli Harrington and 27-year-old Patrice Briscoe Harrington were found bludgeoned to death in their home on Cockle Shell Drive in Data Point, Nigel Shores Gated Community. Patrice Harrington had also been raped although there was evidence that the Harrington's wrists and ankles were found. No murder weapon or ligatures were found at the scene. The Harrington's had been married for three months at the time of their death. Patrice was a nurse in, in Irvine, and Keith was a medical student at UC Irvine. Keith's brother, Bruce, later spent nearly $2 million supporting $2 million supporting California 
Proposition 69, authorizing DNA collection from all California felons and certain other criminals. Um, 1981, on February 6th, 28-year-old Manuela Withorn was raped and murdered in her Irvine home. Although Withorn's body had signs of being tied before she was bludgeoned, no murder weapons or literature were found. <clears throat> Although the victims were married, her husband was away, hospitalized, and she was also alone at the time of the attack. Withorn's television was found in the backyard, possibly the killer's attempt to make the crime appear to be a botched robbery. On July 27, 35-year-old Sherry Domingo and 27-year-old Gregory Sanchez became the original Night Stalker's 10th and 11th murder victims. Both were attacked in Domingo's residence on Toltec Way in Galera, several blocks south of Robert Offerman's condominium, where she was living temporarily. It was owned by a relative and up for sale. The offender entered the house through a small bathroom window. Sanchez had not been tied and was not shot and wounded in the, in the cheek. Wait. The offender entered the house through a small bathroom window. Sanchez had not been tied and was shot and wounded in the cheek before he was bludgeoned to death with a garden tool. <clears throat> that didn't sound right the first time I said that. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Some believe that Sanchez may have realized he was dealing with the man responsible for the Offerman Manning's murders and tried to tackle the killer rather than be tied. Again, no neighbors responded to the gunshot. Sanchez had Sanchez's head was covered with clothes pulled from the closet. Domingo was was raped and bludgeoned. Bruises on her wrists and ankles indicated that she had been tied. Although the restraints were missing, a piece of shipping twine was found near the bed, and fiberglass from an unknown source was scattered over her body. Authorities believe that the attacker may have worked as a painter on a similar job at the Gaja Real Shipping Center. 1986. On May 4th, 18-year-old Janelle Lisa Cruz was found after she was raped and bludgeoned to death in her Irvine home. Her family was on vacation in Mexico at the time of the attack. A pet prince reported missing by Cruz's stepfather was thought to be the murder weapon. Initially, investigators in respective jurisdictions did not think the Southern California murders were connected. A Sacramento detective strongly believed that the East Area Rapist was responsible for the Galetta attack but the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's officers attributed them to a local career criminal who was later murdered. Unaware of the Galata murders, local police and surrounding jurisdictions followed false leads related to men who were close to the female victims. One person later cleared was charged with two of the murders. Many years later, the cases were linked almost entirely by DNA testing. Thank God for DNA. Thank you. Okay, so apparently there was communications left. Um, so the first one is a written one, mm -hmm. and it says, Excitement Crave Poem. 
Um, in December 1977, someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist sent a poem, Excitement's Crave, to the, the Sacramento Bee, the Sacramento Mayor's Office, and the tele television station KVIE. On de December 11th, a masked man eluded pursuit by law enforcement personnel after alerting authorities by telephone that he was he would strike on Watt Avenue that night. Excitement crave. All those mortals serving birth upon f facing maternity take inventory on their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values become a task one self must seek satisfaction to select the route will unmask. Ta characters where plants take action. Accepting some some works to perform at fixed pay but promise for more in a, rec in a recognized social norm as in decorum seeking lore, achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame, leisure's tempts excitement seeking, what's right and expected seems tame, Jesse James had, been, had seen, all, seen by all and Son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptations call. Sacramento should make an offer. Take a movie of my life. They will pay for my planned exam. Just now I like <clears throat> just now I like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and deserving past past. Deserving past. See you in press. Or on TV. Oh. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Was he like trying to be like the Zodiac Killer? Where, because you know the Zodiac Killer, he didn't make those letters to go mm -hmm. in and get, you know, more infamy. But he was also to toy with the people. Right. Um. So was this one trying to like do the same? Because I know like a lot of killers, they try to replic replicate other. Um. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um. I from what I what I get from the poem and from people that I've heard speak about it, he was kind of pissed off that people got their moment of fame, and he hasn't yet with everything that he has done. So I think that was a poem to let them know, hey, I've done all this. Why don't I get an author? Why don't I get press? Why you know? So. But the thing is, see, this is where I feel like a lot of criminals get it so effed up, and then they end up getting caught, mm -hmm. is because they're seeking that publication, that acknowledgement of, hey, this guy's so scary, you know? Yeah. My thing is, not saying I would ever do this, you know, but if i was to be where i was in that state where i'm like murdering people and and i want to get away with it so i could keep on feeding my that that crazy feeling mm -hmm. um i wouldn't try to you know direct people my way right. by any means oh, yeah, you know absolutely. if they don't know about me and they can't figure it out that's on them i'm going to keep yeah. doing what i got to do i'm going to keep going and you know yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just me that I would, 
you know, say, let me just keep it quiet. It's yeah. my little secret. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't want the fame and notoriety either if I was to do something like that, which yeah. I would have. But, you know, I mean, but these people, a lot of them, and, and we're going to go through a couple of them that want that fame, need that fame. Because if not, their life is don't make any sense. See, this is this is what I like, like um, Israel Keats. Mm-hmm. He, although he collected the information and all the um, details that was put in the media about the crimes that he committed, mm-hmm. um, but when he had did the acts, he only would you know cut out the newspapers mm-hmm. um, about it, but he would never bring the attention to him because. He wanted to keep living his life and keep doing right. what his fantasy was, but also he didn't want his daughter knowing his past. Right. You know, and he didn't get busted until he he started getting out of control, mm-hmm. you know, and started using the car, the credit card of Samantha, which, you know, if you listen to our podcast um, last week, you would know the details. You would know the details about everything, mm. but I think his mindset of you know, let me just do my acts. No one's going to know. I can say I only killed this amount of people if I eventually get busted mm-hmm. because I'm not attaching myself to things, you know? Yeah, with Israel Keats, it was about his own satisfaction more than yeah. his, the, the notoriety of it all. Yeah. yeah, his ego wasn't that big. He knew he was smart, no. but he just kept it quiet. Exactly. All right, so continuing on. During the investigation in Danville of the 42nd attack, Investigators discovered three sheets of notebook paper near where a suspicious vehicle had reportedly been parked. They believed the, they believe the pages were draped, dropped accidentally, excuse me, uh, perhaps by falling out of a bag. The first sheet appears to be a homework essay on General George Armstrong Custer. The second sheet contains a journal-style entry describing a teacher who made students write lines which the author found humiliating. Um, <clears throat> mad is the word, the word that reminds me of my sixth grade. Oh, before I do that, I'm sorry. I'm saying it the way they wrote it, so it's not my mistake, but a six-year-old, you know, a sixth grader writing that. Oh, okay. You know, because there's going to be a lot of words that don't make any sense. You can make out what they're trying to say. Sorry about the dogs barking. So, um, this was a sixth grader. Um, again, the words will make sense, but they're not spelled correctly. So, I'm going to try my best to give you exactly how they, they said this. Okay. Mad is the word. The word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year. The last and worst year of elementary school. Mad is the word that that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointment that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teacher, such as filed trips that were planned that canceled. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad and made me build 
a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that had that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only re reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially, especially? Mm -hmm. taking that what really bugged me was writing sentences. Those awful sentences that my teacher made me write. Hours and hours I sit and write 50, 100, 150 sentences, day and night. I wrote those dreadful paragraphs which embarrassed me and more important, it made me ashamed of myself which in turn, deep down inside, made me realize <clears throat> that writing sentence wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones asked, until my hands felt very horrid, pain it ever had as I wrote. I got madder and matter until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because, <clears throat> excuse me, I cried because I was mad and I cried for myself. Kid who kept on having to write those damn sentences. My angriness from sixth grade will scare my memory for life and I will be ashamed for my sixth grade year forever. Now, I gotta say something real quick. There's a lot of typos. <laughs> There's a lot of typos. But she, whoever this was, had a lot of words that were kind of big that she wrote correctly. I mean, when she wrote right, she put W R I or he wrote W W R I G H T, and then but horrid was spelled correctly. There was a lot of words that was paragraphs was spelled correctly and she couldn't spell disgusted or sensitive or he. You know, which is kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was looking at it and then it was like, um, there was also the part where she, when the person who wrote this went to say very and instead they said every. Mm -hmm. And in my head I'm just like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. I mean, Unfortunately, school failed this kid. He was sick. This person was in sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, on the last sheet was a hand-drawn map of what areas to be, what appears to be a suburban neighborhood, with the word punishment scrawled across the reverse side. Investigators were, were unable to identify the area depicted in the map, although the artist clearly had knowledge of the agricultural, agro Agriculture. Thank you. Layout and landscape design. Um, according to Detective Larry Poe, the map is a fantasy location representing the rapist's desired striking ground. Okay, phone calls. Now, from what I understand, this is his phone calls. The uh, Bayside. Yeah, the Bayside killer. 
Or the East Side Rapist, excuse me. I'm the East Side Rapist. March 18, 1977. On March 18, 1977, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office received three calls from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist. None were recorded. The first two calls received at 445, uh, 4.15 and 4.30 were identical and ended with a call laughing and hanging up. The final call came in at 5 p.m. with the caller saying, I'm the East Side Rapist and I had my next victim already staked, stalked, and you guys can't catch me. A little too confident, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, you're never going to catch me December 2nd, 1977. A man claiming to be the rapist called the Sacramento Police Department saying, You're never going to catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. The call was recorded and later released. As with the previous calls, the next victim was attacked that night. Wow, so he wasn't joking. No. Uh, Merry Christmas, December 9, 1977. During the 1977 Christmas season, a previous victim received a phone call that she attributed to her attacker. The caller said, Merry Christmas, it's me again. So wait, is he calling them? Before. Like, like no, but he said, it's me again. So is this somebody that he already attacked? And he's just like... Fucking with them mentally as well? I think this is um, this particular person was one that he um, knew mm-hmm. and now was ready to attack. Oh, my dear Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing is Watt Avenue, December 10th, 1977. Shortly before 10 p.m. on December 10th, 1977. 1977. Wow, I can't speak today. All these words. Um... <laughs> Sacramento, Sacramento authorities received two identical calls saying, I'm going to hit tonight, Watt Avenue. Both were recorded, and the caller was identified as the same person who placed the calls on December 2nd. Law enforcement patrols were increased at night, and at 2.30 a.m., a masked man eluded officers after being seen bicycling on the Watt Avenue bridge. When spotted again at 4.30 a.m., he discarded the bicycle and fled on foot. The bicycle, the bicycle had been stolen. Gonna kill you, January 2nd, 1978. The first known rape victim received a wrong number call asking, <coughs> excuse me, asking for rape. On January 2nd, 1978, the call was recorded and police suspect, suspect that it may be the same caller who made a threatening call to her later that evening. The call was also recorded and identified by the victim as the voice of her assailant. The caller said, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, bitch, 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 fucking whore. He's getting very confident. He, he's very ballsy, yes. being honest. Like, yeah. Um, counseling service, January 6, 1978. A man claiming to be the East Area Rapist called the contact counseling service and said, I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. 
After a short conversation, the caller said, I believe you are tracking this call and hung up. Later calls, 1982 to 1991, in 1982, a previous victim received a call at her place of work at Denny's restaurant during which the rapist threatened to rape her again, according to Contra Costa County investigators Paul Holes. The rapist must have chance to patronize the restaurant and recognize victims there. In 1991, a previous victim received a phone call from the perpetrator and spoke with him for one minute. She could hear women and children in the background, leading to speculation that he had a family. Final call, 2001. On April 6, 2021, one day after an article in the Sacramento Bee linked the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist and victim of the rapist received a call from him. He asked, remember when we played? OMG. So at this moment, it's it basically he's tormenting previous victims, mm -hmm. tormenting the cops. Right. He's just playing a cat and mouse game and then oh my god he's he is just oh can't do it no no i'm glad this case is yours not mine thanks a lot but i mean it was kind of it was actually it was i like it um mm -hmm. and he and you could tell he was he's demented i mean yeah, he got issues yeah he definitely got issues um i i particularly put the phone calls because I'm like, oh, this guy's getting out, like you said, ballsy. He's, yeah. He knows that he's killed and he's burglarized and he's raped and nobody has caught him. What you gonna do to me now? Try to catch me. Well, could it be the, like, as we already know, he, I'm not sure if he's still at this time is a police officer, um, but he was a police officer. Yeah. So, who's to say he doesn't have knowledge of what was going on in the case? Which probably made him still ballsy enough to be like, okay, you know, they don't got nothing on me. Right, and the and the good part from him, for him and bad for police is that the police trained him. He was a cop. He lost his job because he stole uh, dog repellent and something else. I forgot what the other thing was. Mm -hmm. So he got fired because he stole. Yeah. You're a cop. Why are you stealing? But. So the police trained him. He became a cop. He was a cop for a while, pretty long time. And then they fired him because he sold. So the police had trained him. He was, he knew the routes. He knew how to get where people, you know, he got into a house where, not the front door, the back door, through the garden, through the alleyway behind the house, you know, however it was. And he always escaped in ways that was open, but a car couldn't get through, so you had to chase him. By the time you got out your car to chase him, he was gone. Yeah. You know, so... And then the fact that they would have to chase him with all that equipment on, which will still slow them down. Right. You know, and the the fact that he was... I, I don't want to give him props, but the fact that he used a stolen bicycle... Right. ...to get him halfway 
you know, and then probably use what his vehicle to get him home so he looks normal to everybody else, you know. Yeah, cause that's he, like what the French. Yeah, because he used to use stolen bicycles to get to his car, and if he couldn't get to his car, he would dump the bicycle and run. So. So he had to be athletic as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, if he was, and also he, again, he was a cop. Yeah. I, you know, there's not many too too many Training big cops that are big and fat. You yeah. Know. So he was he was definitely very athletic. Oh my god. Well, the good thing is he was caught, so that puts an ease in my brain. So, yeah. you know, um, and we're sorry to leave you with the cliffhanger because we we want to leave the investigation and everything that follows after that um, for the next episode. Like we said, this was going to be a two-parter. Um, so you'll be able to know how the cops figure out it was him, how everything goes down, um, and then his sentence as well. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, if you want to know what happens and how everything goes down, just listen to our next podcast coming next Saturday. Um, unfortunately, this this week we were a day delayed. Um, like we said, this was a two-parter, so there was a lot of information, um, and we wanted to make sure we give you everything that we could possibly dig up and bring to you. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify, uh, Murderous Intentions. If you want to write to us, our email is murderousintention21 at gmail.com. Um, we'll gladly read your email. Um, if you have a case that you want to hear from us, we will also go ahead and do that for you. Um, we also started, um, Instagram. Yes, and we also started an Instagram, so you can be able to keep up with knowing what's going on. Um, we haven't decided if we would add, like, personal pictures of us, um, but basically right now this is more about the podcast and mm -hmm. going from there. Um, if you have any opinions, definitely, you know, send us a message. We'll gladly, you know, listen and then answer you back, um, whether we, it's crossed our minds or maybe no, mm -hmm. we're not ready for it. Um... We have a YouTube channel, but it's not um, completed. Like I said, there's a lot of things that we've been working on, and where it's it's a process, you know, with our regular daily life mm -hmm. um, to get everything up and going, and still be able to investigate really deep into our cases. So, um, I think that's all I have to say. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, you got all our links. You you know where to reach us. Um, if you have, uh, like she said, if you have any questions, I mean, we this is our what fifth? Yeah, this is our podcast. fifth episode. So there may be cases that we haven't even thought about yet. So yeah, send us the links. You know, let us know what you think. We love we love to interact with you. And uh, yeah, that's all for me. Let's let's get the people talking to us so, so we could get some ideas that we never thought of. True. All right, guys. See you next week and hope you enjoy. Right, bye. -bye. bye.